I have read my title of this message about um, again and again and again, and I still keep saying Simon says instead of Solomon says. Uh, but uh, you probably get where the reference is right now at this point. Um, I sure that you probably played Simon says when you were little. I, I don't know if that's still a game the kids play. Uh, uh, I'm going to age myself because uh, if I say that back in my day we played those. I didn't really play Simon Says that much when I was little. I didn't really like that game because I felt like it was just a trick because people would say a bunch of stuff and then they would, then you would do it like, you know, touch your nose. But, oh, Simon didn't say to do that. And it was just a cruel, it was a cruel thing that, that kids like to do to each other. So I, I don't, I didn't like that game. But I really liked the, I guess it was kind of a, um, a spinoff of Simon Says or inspired by, by Simon Says, but, but the, the 80s electronic game, um, maybe some of y'all had this. I, I didn't grow up in the 80s, but I grew up in a house that was full of stuff from the 80s, uh, and I loved this. I love this, um, and, and if y'all know what this is, the, the little thing that the lights would, would bright up, and it would make that really cool Pong-like sound, because uh, the same people that, that made Pong made this, so it kind of had that, that uh, very old computer sound that would, would uh, go along with the lights, and uh, you'd have to memorize um, which light uh, was, was next and, and try to mimic it. So I guess it was kind of like Simon Says, but instead of telling you to do something silly, like touch your nose or spin in circles, it was just saying, hey, touch the light. Um, so I really, I credit my, my memory, my good memory. Um, I, I think I have a pretty good memory, and I think it really is, is in part of playing this when I was little, because if, if you know anything about this thing, um, it would go on for like, you know, 10, 20, you know, lights at a time, and, and, and if you could memorize that, you were doing pretty good. I don't have any record, you know, evidence that I could uh, go, you know, 10 or 12 rounds, but I, I really, uh, I played the game a lot when I was a kid, and I uh, think I was pretty good at it, um, uh, and uh, I, I digress because today's message is not, unfortunately, called Simon Says. I wish I still had this old board um, because we could spend, take it around the room and, and, and take turns doing that, but that's not what we're here today to do, unfortunately, uh, but the message is is not called Simon Says, it's called Solomon Says, and today is a conclusion, a concluding message to our New Year's series, Resolutions for the Soul, and, and again, I don't think it's a big deal if you haven't been here. I think this will be a good entry point, and at the same time, uh, an exit of this series. Uh, we've been talking about focusing on our souls to kick off this new year, and, and according to Jesus, again, this isn't my idea, this isn't an original idea. Uh, again, probably a lot of preachers and a lot of churches probably have had this, this, these same messages to, to kick off the year. Uh, but regardless, this isn't a new idea. Jesus himself introduced this to us 2,000 years ago when he basically said that there's nothing more important about you than your soul. That you may have a lot of things on your agenda for this year. You may have a lot of things that you're prioritizing this year and a lot of things that you think are the most important part about, uh, thing about you or part of your life. But Jesus said there's nothing more important about you than your soul because your soul is you with or without the statuses, accomplishments, or possessions of of this world. So regardless if you meet all the goals you've set for this year, regardless if you uh, acquire that or accomplish that or uh, obtain that label that you're going after or make that meet that standard that you're trying to meet and, and acquire that possession that you want so badly, regardless if you do or if you don't, uh, if you succeed or if you fail, your soul is you without those things, with or without those things. And, and what you may not realize uh, is that the way we interpret our appearance, the weight that we give to our labels, the importance that we, uh, that we give to the things that we 
possess. All of that in reality uh, is really in flux based on the time and place and generation that you are a, a part of. Um, you may judge yourself or determine the value uh, of by, your value by how you look, uh, by the category that you fit into, the group you belong to, uh, the things that you own. Uh, you, you may uh, you may you know judge yourself or grade yourself by all sorts of different metrics. But and I think that we all know this. But if we were to be picked up and placed in any other point in history, in the future or the past, uh, our judgment would probably change, even if we stayed the same. And, and, and I think the best way to, to kind of to, to understand this is if you look at pictures of people from centuries ago, uh, or people that you know that were considered handsome or beautiful, uh, you know, who were on the cutting edge of fashion and uh, fame. Have you ever looked at pictures from from 100, 200, 300 years ago and thought to yourself? Are you kidding me? Right? This person, you know, this person was supposed to be the, the, the cutting edge of fashion. This person's supposed to be beautiful or handsome. I mean, you know, hey, if, if I were to go back in that generation, I might would actually win some awards or whatever based on how I look because I might not think I'm something special now. But put me up against those people, I'm, I'm looking pretty good. Uh, you know, have you ever looked at the, the, the pictures of our founding fathers? They were all wearing, you know, powder on their face and they were wearing white wigs right? And they were supposed to be considered fashionable and, and good-looking for their day, right? I mean, I mean, look at this guy. I mean, now, this guy, he's not one of our founding fathers, so if you're trying to think, who is that? I don't remember him. This is some French guy that, that nobody even remembers who he was, but the reason I show you this picture is he was considered so handsome, uh, and his fashion was so great that a portrait was commissioned uh, by, by the French you know, artistry of the day uh, because they thought, hey, this guy, this guy needs to be captured in history because one day people are going to look back at him and think, wow, that's the kind of hair you want, and that's the kind of makeup that you want, or, and that, that's the kind, that's what you you want to look like, right, guys? Uh, now, all these years later, uh, maybe, maybe that's what's wrong with us. I don't know, um, but uh, not, not so much, right? We don't, we don't really want to go back to that era, uh, ladies. You can tell me later if that, if I got, a, if I'm missing on that. Um, but uh, you know, maybe, maybe you look at pictures of people from maybe uh, people from decades ago, and you think, <laughs> yikes, that they were considered good looking. I mean, what were they thinking? You know, they're wearing this and they're they're walking in that. Uh, and, and come on, you do this with your own pictures, don't you? Right? If you've been around long enough to look back at the fashion from the, you know, and you, you may think that, it, that, we've, that we've digressed, but right, I'm sure there's pictures of you from 20, 30, 40 years ago, or maybe five years ago, you look at them and think, what was, what was I thinking? Or what was my mama or my, my, my parent, parents thinking? Now, I don't do that, this to myself because I've just always been on the cutting edge of, of good looks and fashion, of course. Uh, way back to the early days, um, I wish I could bring this back. Now, that's... I, uh, that picture, that red jumpsuit I'm wearing, I guess Google, whatever, thought it was part of my, my sister's sweater too. So uh, I, I just didn't want to put that, that guy with the wig on the screen for too much longer. So just look at me for a little bit. And if you think, hey, I've really lost something, at least you can look back at me from, from 1995 or whatever. Um, but hey, I, that, that's the fashion we need to bring back. You can only dress like that if you're five or 95, right? Uh, you, can, you can't do it anywhere in between. Uh, but, but I think all that should tell us, all that should tell us that we determine what looks good or or what's valuable, not really based on what we think or what we feel, but based on what people tell us, right? We determine what is 
fashionable or good looking or successful based on what the world says or what the current trend says is good or is you know is is on uh, you know to, to be admired we have no idea and, and again I'm not trying to make you question your own instincts I, I'm just trying to kind of make you realize where they come from or what they're influenced by we have no idea what looks good or not not good in and of ourselves nine times out of ten we're just following whatever the world tells us or has told us to get behind but the same thing can be true about how we judge ourselves in almost every area. Like, we feel good about what's on our resume, but 100 years ago, nobody would even be impressed about it. Or 100 years from now, people would think, that all you got? Uh, this world is constantly changing its standards. Raising some bars, lowering other bars, and, and that includes possessions. The things that we devote, that we denote uh, as, you know, that denote wealth or, um, you know, power, in today's world, the previous generation wouldn't even understand. The future generation wouldn't even, you know, be impressed by. Uh, and, and that's why Jesus preached that we shouldn't fall for this world's spell to chase after certain levels of status and wealth and fame or notoriety. Because even if we gain all those things, at the end of the day, the most pressing question is, how are our souls doing? Beneath the surface of our lives, Behind all the artificial stage dressing this world sets up is our soul. And our soul is the real us, the eternal us, that the us that won't be remembered if we won a popularity contest and won't remember how much money we made, won't remember how much treasure we piled up. Our soul is the invisible version, the invisible version of ourselves that will one day be the most visible, the only lasting part of ourselves. Think about that. That nobody can see the soul and nobody is impressed by the soul because the soul is not what you see and is not what piles up the treasure. It's not what wears all the ribbons and all the trophies and all the accolades, right? But the part of us that's invisible now will one day be the only visible part. Will one day be the only lasting part of ourselves. So the message is how we care for it and how we tend to it and how we prioritize it. That's what will matter in eternity. And that's why Jesus asked this question that convicts us every time we hear it, even if we've heard it a hundred times and responded accordingly. He said again in Mark chapter 8, we looked at this a few weeks ago, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? And, and what this verse, what these questions makes us do is ask ourselves the question, am I taking care of my soul. And it makes us want to know more about what it means to take care of our souls, doesn't it? I think it makes us lean in and think, okay, Jesus, am I at risk of forfeiting my soul? A am I at risk at exchanging my soul for something that I'm not going to value in eternity? Am I at risk putting all my chips forward on something that ultimately I'm going to regret? And if it doesn't make you think that, then, then maybe it should make you think that. If God is my creator, and he gave me my soul, and one day my soul will return to him. And that's pretty good logic, right? God created us. God gave us our soul. One day our soul is going to go back to God. So to take care of our soul is suddenly the most important thing. And if you connect all the dots, to take care of our soul is to take serious our relationship with God, that's not too big of a reach, is it? That if God made us and we're going to return to him and, and God is our creator, then to take care of our soul and to prioritize our soul is to take serious our relationship with God. So if I neglect my soul and if I neglect my creator, then ultimately 
I'm neglecting the most important part of me. What I think these words of Jesus offer us, when I, what I hope this series and our look at Luke, Ruth last week has done for us is provide a platform where we can soberly and thoughtfully consider the true condition and the true quality of our lives. And I, and I hope that it helps us kind of have a lens to look through that, that if we were to strip away all the things this world tells us are important, take away the temporary, take away the cosmetic, what would be left? What if we were to do that this morning? What if you were to take away and, and to just remove all the things that we give ourselves a grade for, all the things that we think, well, that means I've done well, or that means I've made it, or that means I'm doing pretty good. If you take away all the temporary, all the cosmetic, all the, the, the external layer of our lives that we feel good about or the world says we should feel good about, if you take away all that stuff, what's left? So, so why don't we do, the, do that right now? Think about that right now. If you haven't already been thinking about it. Define or describe yourself, to define or describe you without all the labels or temporary identities this world affords you. So if you were to try to think, okay, how would I define myself? How would I judge myself? How would I define, describe myself if I didn't have all these external, temporary, cosmetic, worldly labels that I often lean on? Now, if you're sitting here like a deer in headlights and thinking, well, Justin, how do I do that? I mean, because I kind of live in the world and I'm kind of defined by what I look like and what I, what I do and how much I've made and all this other stuff. How would I define myself and how would I describe myself if I didn't have all those other, you know, words in the, in, the, in the bank to use? What would we have to work with if we took away all those temporary identities, worldly identities? Well, if you peel it all back, what we're left with is our characters or our hearts, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about our souls. It's just another word for it. What kind of person are we in the different opportunities we have in this world? How are we managing our relationships? How are we leveraging the things that we've been given uh, made, and made stewards over? So to, so, to, so to help you connect the dots, if we're wanting to take care of our souls, if we want to preserve our souls, then we will focus on our characters. We will focus on our hearts. We will focus on what kind of person we are or aren't. Now, this is something that was internalized me a long, long time ago, not just because I was brought up in church and, and taught the Bible as my foundation for, for truth, but because of at my elementary school, and maybe this still happens in, in, in your schools or has happened in your schools. In my elementary schools, one of the things I remember the most about it was each month, a different character trait was highlighted and emphasized. Um, there used to be these conferences, we'd all get in the auditorium, and there would be this whole thing about this whole spill about the different word that was going to be highlighted that month. And I remember walking into the lobby of the entry of my elementary school, and there was a big bulletin board uh, that regardless, depending on what month it was, there was a word that was right really big, bold on the, on the bulletin board. Uh, it might have been responsibility one month, it might have been respect one month, might have been kindness one month. Uh, but, but part of highlighting the trait each month and understanding what that word meant was talking about the opposite of it, talking about what it didn't mean and what it didn't entail and, and, and things you wanted to avoid. Uh, and, and I think this is the perfect way to think about our souls. Because when it comes to your relationship with God, when it comes to the kind of person that we are, our characters tell the tale and reveal whether or not we have a heart for God. That God is not impressed about all the things the world's impressed by. God is not impressed about all the things the world says, hey, you should chase after, you should aspire for, you should aim for. God isn't impressed in any of those things. Can we honor God in those things? Of course. 
But what tells the tale is our character. And that's what reveals whether or not we have a heart for God. So we're a few weeks into this new year, but it's not too late for any of us to start to consider and ask the question, what kind of person are we? What kind of person do we want to be? It doesn't matter what we look like. It doesn't matter how much we have. It doesn't matter what hats we wear, what labels we wear. It doesn't matter what brands or groups we associate with. What matters is our characters. What matters is our soul. What matters is our heart. So we asked a few questions a few weeks ago to get us started, but I want to ask you another simple question, but, but pretty, pretty important one. How is your heart? That if you were to describe it, define it, if you were to detail the character that you possess, if you were to detail the kind of soul that you have, what would you say? What would somebody else say? What would the person across from you at home, at work, in general in your community, how would they define this question? If we were to take it out, and not your literal heart, but if we were to take out your soul and this intangible part of you and hold it up to the light, uh, what would we see? What would be on display? Would we be pleased or would you be, would you be pleased with what was on display? And the reality is, the reality is that every single day our hearts are on display through the choices that we make, the words that we use, the actions that we take. So for the rest of our time, we're going to listen to the words of what many believe, it was the, who many believe was the wisest man who ever lived, who was also one of the most powerful, most wealthy, most handsome, most successful men of his day. He checked every single box. Men were jealous of him. Women oohed and awed at him. Uh, he never went a day of his life without anything he could ever want. And yes, we're talking about King Solomon. Solomon, David's son, became king at 19 years old and took Israel to the most prosperous place ever. Now, I want you to open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, which is in the middle of the Old Testament. But I'm actually going to put a verse on the screen from one of his earlier writings from the book of Proverbs. Uh, you find your place in Ecclesiastes and then look up here on the screen, Proverbs 4.23. Now, we'll read the verse in a minute, but this was passed down from David to Solomon. So if you read Proverbs, David says, hey, Solomon says, hey, my dad taught me a lot. My dad gave me a lot of wisdom, and I'm sharing that wisdom with you. So we, we call Solomon the wisest man that ever lived, and that's because God gave him a wise heart. But Solomon even confesses in, in Proverbs, most of the stuff my dad taught me, right? And that's how it is for most of us, right? Somebody else taught us, and we just get credit for it. Solomon says in chapter four, hey, David, my dad taught me all this stuff, so I'm sharing it with y'all, and, and hopefully by sharing it with y'all, we'll all be smarter and all be wiser for it. Uh, but, but this was passed down from David to Solomon. Solomon included it in his wisdom writings to remind himself as much as, uh, as it was there to remind us. Now, I'm using a newer translation than might, what many of you might would use. The older ones uh, don't use some words that we just don't use anymore, and I'll explain that. Uh, but if I were translating this from the Hebrew myself, I would put it like this more than maybe what the, the older versions say. Um, your Bible might use the word keep. Uh, we just don't use that word with regard to guarding anymore. Uh, and, and your Bible might use the, use the word issue. And issue is an old English word that means source or spring. It doesn't mean trouble like we use today. But with all that being said, Proverbs 4.23. Let's go back. Guard your hearts above all else, for it is the source of life. So Solomon says, hey, if you want to take one bit of advice from me, above all else, guard your heart because it is the source of 
your life. It is the most vulnerable part of you. It's the most impressionable part of you. It is the most sensitive part of you. And you might would think, well, Solomon, isn't there more important things to guard? Solomon says, no, the most important thing for you to do is guard your heart because your heart, your character, your soul is the most important part of you. So you cannot let your guard down lest you get to the end of your life and you are less than satisfied with that version of yourself. Above all else, guard your heart, as in protect your soul. Your soul is impressionable. Your soul is vulnerable. Your soul is sensitive in how you take care of it and how you tend to it and how you develop it, how you mature it. That is the most important Steps, the most important steps you can take every single day is guarding your heart because it is the source of your life. It is where you are going to live out your days from and the thing that's going to go with you when your days end. Now, ironically enough, or perhaps that's why God inspired him to write it, uh, Ecclesiastes is basically Solomon's Solomon's confession that he didn't listen to his own advice. So if you want a, a short thesis of Ecclesiastes, at the end of his life, probably in his 70s or 80s, Solomon sat down to write, a confession. And that confession is the book of Ecclesiastes. And he basically says, hey guys, I didn't take my dad's advice. I didn't guard my heart and let me explain what happened to me as a result. I didn't take care of my soul. I didn't value my relationship with God. I believed in him. Oh, I believed in him. And oh, I asked him to bless me. And boy, I had more than I could ever want and ever do anything with. But let me just be honest with y'all. I did not guard my heart and I regret it terribly. Ecclesiastes is Solomon's confession that he faced, as he faced the last few years of his life, that he was less than pleased and less than proud of the condition of his heart, of the character of his soul. And he doesn't hold back. His own self-deprecation, his own self-criticism, he makes it very clear where he went wrong. That even though he may have been known for wisdom, he wants you to know he is full of regret. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 3, listen to how Solomon opens the book up. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And vanity just means it's a waste. And he's not trying to say that it's useless to live or it's useless to try to, to live out your days with, with, with purpose. He's saying, hey guys, I wasted my life. I know it might not look like I did. But just hear it from my own mouth. I spent my days on vanity. Verse 3 is so powerful. What profit has a man? You've heard that before, haven't you? What does it profit a man? What profit has a man from all his labor in which he tolls under the sun? Now Solomon wears his emotions on his sleeves and just lets us know how he was feeling about his life at the end of his days. But I want you to think about this. This is so, this is so big, and this, this should make you look differently at all the people who the world says, hey, they're the ones that have made it. They're the ones that have got the power and the wisdom and all the wealth. Solomon, the richest, the wisest, the richest, the most famous, the most powerful man in the world admits to wasting his life, confesses extreme regret. And we would say, Solomon, Solomon, oh buddy, you didn't waste your life. 
Think about all the experience you had, all the joy that you got to, to take part in, how much money you made. I mean, I'd love to have just a part of it. You know, you hear people say, oh, if he just shared a, a tenth of his money with me, I'd be so wealthy. I mean, we think about that stuff because, oh, we think these people, they've got it made. And we would say, Solomon, you had it made. All the money, all the power, all the incredible things you got to do, be a part of. Solomon, you lived the dream. Nobody ever had a life like you, Solomon. And Solomon would say to us with depression and dejection in his heart, yes, yeah, so. Now, again, we're tempted to say, Solomon, you're just being hard on yourself. You're not well. Can we really trust him in here? But I tell you, I mean, verse 2 may seem like overkill, but verse 3 hits so hard. And it sounds like what Jesus would say all those years later. What does it profit a man if he does all this stuff, yet he realizes he did it all for nothing? He wasted it. He wasted his life on things that ultimately don't mean anything. This isn't Solomon saying that life has no meaning. It's Solomon saying that I lived a life that had no meaning. I didn't have to do this, but I did. If anyone had ever gained the world, it was Solomon. Yet he had compromised and sacrificed his own soul in the process. Not just in the sins he committed or his immorality, or got his hands in the wrong thing, but because for all those years he fed his stomach, but starved his soul. What if we were to do the same thing? What if for years and years and years we lived our life, we fed our stomach as we fed this flesh, and all oh, we piled up all the accolades and accomplishments, and everybody admired us because, hey, who wouldn't want to be us? But Solomon says, y'all, I fed my stomach, but I starved my soul. I prospered and I advanced, but I was falling behind spiritually. And you know what the worst part about this is? He was a believer. He prayed when he needed something. Yet when he got everything, he didn't really have to pray much because he didn't need anything, right? He was a believer. He, he, he was a, a, a person who went to the temple and worshiped. But guess what? He did not give any thought to his relationship with God. God was just a genie in a bottle that he called on every once in a while until he didn't even need him anymore. He didn't think twice about what kind of character he was possessing towards God, his fellow man. All he was concerned about was himself. As a result, he felt like he had lost himself. Look down at verse number seven. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And this is Solomon talking about his own life. He says, I, I, I got everything, yet I was not full. Do you, do you see that? He is the, the river run into the sea. It's talking about his own life. I was not full. I had everything. But I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel anything from it. My eyes weren't satisfied. My ears weren't filled as in I had it all, saw it all, did it all, yet I could not show you anything of significance, of importance as a result. I tell you, some universal law ought to be put in place where every 18-year-old has to read those verses and memorize those verses before they start chasing their dreams. Right, and it wouldn't do us. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be hurtful for us to do it every few years. Right? 
I still think it wouldn't hurt us to, talk, to study it again and again and again because if these words are true, more importantly, if they are inspired truth from God to us, think about how much grief and regret we could save ourselves. Solomon says, Solomon says, listen to me, let my life be a warning to all who think that a fulfilled life is found in more or most, better or best, great or greatest. Let my life be a warning to you that a fulfilled life is not found in having the most or being the best or having or being known as the greatest. He says that more power, more wealth, more success, more accolades, more fans, more admirers, the more I gain, the emptier my soul felt. Now, here's the thing. It's not that you can't have power, wealth, and success and still have a full soul, but if our sights are set on those things, we've already forfeited our soul over. And isn't it interesting that every story the Bible tells of people like Solomon, people say, well, I could, if, if that were me, I could have both. <laughs> really? You think so? I mean, we see all these people who have everything and more and better and best, and we think, well, if that was me... This world has a, has a, is a drug and it has a toxic effect on us. And it's so easy to get our priorities in the wrong places, isn't it? We've all been there. Solomon says, let me be a warning. Look at verse 12 through 14. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I set my heart to seek out and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task. God has given to the sons of man. And he doesn't say that, he isn't saying that God made him do it. He's just like, hey, this is a burdensome task that, that we kind of, that falls on our shoulders by which that may be, they may be exercised. In verse 14, he says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and indeed all is vanity and grasping or chasing after the wind. Now, now your Bible, King James says vexation of spirit. New King James and newer translations say chasing the wind or grasping for the wind. Now that's a very simple explanation. The word ruah in Hebrew can be translated both spirit and wind. Uh, so some Bibles, vexation of spirit, which means it exhausts you, that, that you're working a lot and doing a lot, but you're not getting anything in return that's a value of sustenance. But I think in, in general, chasing the wind vexes our souls. So regardless of how you translate that, I think the meaning is pretty obvious. Chasing after the wind, as in, hey, you can't ever get a hold of it, even though it continues to compel you to chase. Solomon says it's grasping the wind. Now, now, if you want to read the whole book and you want to get super depressed, especially on a day like this, if you want to read the whole book, you should do that. But we're going to fast forward to the end of the book and hear how Solomon concludes. Now, in between, he goes into detail about how he chased after the wind, grasped for the wind, and how he brought great stress on his soul and drained his heart of true life. He exposed his heart to all sorts of character traits that were unbecoming and that drift that eventually caused him to drift from God. If you read chapters 2 through 11, he says, I became an insecure, jealous, angry, bitter man. You think, Solomon, why would you ever struggle with these emotions? You had such a good life. Well, that's what happened to him and, and how it happens to us. Solomon didn't safeguard his soul and gave himself to the dream of this world. He became known by his fame and fortune instead of allowing God to define him. He became super insecure that unless he maintained that image and continued climbing, he might lose his status because there's always somebody else coming around the corner. Same thing happens to us when we find ourselves in material things and not in God. We define ourselves by the world and not the Lord. He took credit for his exaltation. He was very jealous of those who hadn't worked as hard as him and still had a pretty good life. He didn't safeguard his soul. He didn't trust God 
that God provided, and it was all God's anyways. He became jealous of those that were competing with him and getting as much as him, but yet didn't do as much as him to get it because he didn't realize that God's the one that gives it all to all of us. He became very angry as he grew older because he realized he was going to lose all the stuff he gained when he died. He became very angry. If you read the middle parts of the book, he says, you know what? I just really wait. I, I didn't, this means nothing. I worked hard and I'm about to die and lose it all. It's not fair. He, he was very bitter that he was going to leave it behind to people that didn't appreciate it like him. And maybe you've got some of these emotions. And maybe you wonder, hey, why do I feel that way? I shouldn't feel that way. I shouldn't be angry or bitter or insecure. I shouldn't be jealous, but I am. And if you feel that way, listen, no condemnation. Solomon says, I was that person. And I'll tell you how I got that way. Because I put my eyes on the wrong prize. I chased after the wind and I'm exhausted for it. And I'm empty because of it. I didn't pursue a relationship with God. I didn't consider how my relationship with God affected, was reflected in my relationship with other people. I let this world direct me and deceive me. And you know what the cruel reality Solomon reveals to us is of living a selfish life? Solomon says that selfishness actually leads to self-destruction. Because selfishness focuses on the parts of us that don't last and ignores our souls completely. If you read the whole book, Solomon says that human intuition and instinct and worldly sense cannot be trusted because our hearts are so easily deceived. We need God to direct us into what really is fulfilled, what really is a fulfilled life. Solomon realized a little too late the secret to living an actual fulfilled and peaceful life. He shares it with us at the end of the book. Now you're tempted to brush this off, but take it from a man who did life his way, who didn't guard his heart, who ended up filled with regret. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse number 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. For this is man's all, or this is man's duty. For God will bring every work into judgment, as in God will reveal man's heart. Solomon says, when I get to heaven, or when I stand before the judgment, I'm not going to stand there a king. I'm not going to stand there a rich, wise, powerful man. I'm going to stand there a soul just like all of you. And the only thing that's going to move God's heart is what did I do? For my soul, and how did I value and take care of my soul? For God will bring everything into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. I tell you, it's pretty amazing that Solomon concludes it all down to that simple commandment or that simple thing fear God and keep his commandments. Now, let me, I want to explain this to you. And you may think, oh, Justin, you're backpedaling this. I'm not. I'll make it very clear what I think this means and what the Bible teaches. Fear God, when, when Solomon says that, when you read in the Bible the fear of the Lord, this is not that we should be afraid of God, that that's not the way that we're supposed to live. Oh, well, God might strike me any minute. That's not what this is talking about. The fear of the Lord is about being afraid of dismissing God for something less than his will for us and settling 
for eternal regret. When you read about the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is God saying to us, we should live this life with a reverence for God as our creator, as our Lord, as the one we're going to return to, and we should live in fear of wasting this life on something that our, our, our bellies might crave, but our souls say, hey, that's not good, that doesn't honor God, that's not part of God's plan. God has told us what is good. He's told us what is right. The fear of the Lord is that we would somehow dismiss God for something less than. Solomon lived his life in fear of missing out on this world. He chased after everything that he could. He went in every direction and tried every experience. What if we lived with that same kind of fear, the same motivation with regard to God and all that he has for us, with respect to his word and the blessings that are locked behind obedience, with reverence for his glory and his splendor and his majesty, understanding that he is worthy of our service and our duty is to honor him. What if we lived, instead of fearing that we're going to miss out on the world, what if our fear was, I don't want to miss out on what God has and what God deserves from me? Talk about diligence and earnestness. Think, many of you, maybe, maybe you think you're falling behind in life. Oh, I should be farther along at this age, or I should have more, or I need to make more, or I better do, my kids or my family needs this. And what if we live with not the fear of the world that the world tells us, what if we live with a fear that what if, what if I'm not spiritually where I should be? What if I'm not spiritually where I could be? What if instead of worrying about, not about getting too old, oh, I can't see this, and I might not get to taste this, I might not get to experience this, I better do it all now because I might not get to one day later. What if instead of that kind of fear, that, that fear of I better, you know, this year I better see it all and do it all and take part in it all and make it all, what if instead of that fear, because it drives all of us. That fear of, oh, what happens if this guy doesn't win the election? Or what happens if this guy runs the country? That fear that drives you, that fear that makes you vote and makes you go and do certain things for certain politicians? What if instead of that fear, you were driven by a fear that says, I don't want to be immature spiritually. I don't want to miss out on God. Listen, we are a scared people. We live in fear of what happens for America? What happens for my family? What happens for me? But what if instead of that fear, we live with a fear of what if I miss out on the kingdom of God? We'd be a lot different, wouldn't we? We'd be a lot closer to God, definitely. Listen to how Jesus discusses this fear as we close. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. But I say, next. But I will warn you who, 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 whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yet I say, fear him. People are saying, okay, Jesus, we know about the fear of God. And, and yeah, we're afraid of Caesar, we're afraid of Rome, we're afraid of Israel not getting to where it should be. But you're saying we should fear the Lord, okay? But then Jesus completely changes the subject but on purpose. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? But, but I thought you were saying fear God. He says, why even the hairs on your head are numbered? Fear not, for you are of much more value than the sparrows. So Jesus says, hey, I, I tell you who you should fear, but let me tell you about what God thinks about you. God isn't angry at you. God isn't trying to get you. 
God would never cast you away as if you're not important. Even the birds matter to God. So you don't have to fear him as if he's somehow against you. You can trust him. You can have confidence that he has your best in mind. So why wouldn't you serve him? God loves you. God values you. Why would you risk that by chasing after some lesser version of this life? Thankfully, we don't have to settle because God has given us a roadmap. He's given us his word, his commandments that are for us. His promise is best. You may be thinking, well, Justin Solomon says, fear God, keep his commandments. What commandments is he talking about? Somebody, somebody might say, well, the Ten Commandments, and they might bring up some stuff from Leviticus. They might say the Great Commission. But thankfully, Jesus makes it real simple for us, makes it real simple for us. He says in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Okay, Jesus, we're going to love God. Whoa, whoa, there's, there's more to it. The second is like it, as in you can't have this side of the coin without the other side. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the entire Bible, is what he says there. So if you don't want to end this life with regret, if you want to take care of your soul, Solomon says, fear the Lord, keep his commandments. And Jesus comes along and makes it real simple. He says, God loves you. God values you. Jesus died to save us, to give us a life of purpose from the chains that bind us like Solomon dealt with. And he leaves us these simple commandments. Love God, love others. You will take care of your soul just fine. That's a purposeful life. That's a meaningful life. That's a life that says my soul is the most important part of me. So how do you love God? Three simple words. Delight, devote, surrender. We'll do a whole sermon on this sometime in the future, but I'm just gonna give you this in closing. Delight, devote, surrender. Seek him with your whole heart. He's proved trustworthy. He's made his love known for you. He has plans for you. He's been honest with us about the alternatives. Nobody is ever satisfied when they choose a path other than the one God has for them. So we can confidently turn towards him and delight in him, let go of this world and find ourselves in him. If you would confess, God, I find some more thing. I find things more delightful than, for, than you. I'm more interested in other things than you. Be honest with God. God says, hey, I will show you what a life in service to me is like. And I promise you, you won't want to be a part of anything else once you get a taste of me delight in him and part of that process means you're going to devote yourself to him your time your money your resources your energy if you are not pouring yourself into God you're going to be empty of him you're going to be filled with all the wrong stuff mainly regret will devoting yourself to God cost you it's a necessary loss the Bible doesn't hold back. The Bible says surrender in every area of your life. Time is not yours. Money is not yours. Talents don't belong to you. God has given them to you and they are so you can honor him with them. If you want to live a fulfilled life, Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, and strength and might. Love him, delight in him, devote yourself to him, surrender to him. Solomon says, hey, I didn't do this. And it cost me much more than I gained. But Jesus said there's a second side of the coin when it comes to loving God. Jesus said that you gotta love people. So how do you love people? Three simple things. Forgive, forge, and serve. You know how God perseveres and loves his love for you? 
You know how God never bats an eye when he says, I love you? Because God never holds your sin against you. You know that? He has cast your sin into the sea of forgetfulness. So he te- that tells me if we're going to love people and keep loving people, we've got to make a habit of forgiving them again and again and again. Because the one thing that keeps you from loving people is unforgiveness. You know what? You can't love some people because you haven't forgiven them as the group they're a part of, the people that they are. You hold sins against them, associated with them. You need to forgive them. Maybe they haven't sinned against you, but you think, oh, they're just, they're wrong. They're in the wrong. I can't love them because they're wrong. You've got to forgive them before you can ever love them. And if you don't forgive them, you won't love them. That's why God took care of the forgiveness part in advance. Because nobody can ever say, well, are they forgiven? Jesus died for every sin so that there's no thing in the way of his love for anybody. So if we want to love people, we've got to forgive them and we've got to move on from there and forge relationships with them. Build relationships, genuine, authentic relationships which require, which require that we serve people. You know how many New Testament passages are all about this very, this very point? that we should serve people so that we could love them genuinely. Read Acts, read Romans, read Corinthians, read Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, the entire book of James. The entire New Testament is about learning how to love people and not, giving, not cutting any corners and doing it. If we care for our souls, we will love God and love people. You say, Justin, does it really all come down to love? I mean, isn't that so, you know, too simple? Or maybe isn't that so trendy? Does it really come down to love? Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. If you love God with all your heart and you love others like he loves you, how much sinning are you going to do to anybody? If you love God and you're delighting in him, devoting to him, surrendering to him, and you love people, you're forgiving them and forging relationships with them and you are serving them, how much sinning are you going to do against anyone, with anyone, if you are loving God and loving them with all your heart? How much selfishness are you going to entertain if your entire life is lived for God and others? I think those answers are pretty, pretty easy to get to, right? What if the reason we resist love so much is because our sin has a defense mechanism that doesn't want us to take care of our souls? Solomon says, if I could do it over again, I'd be, I might be less famous, I might have less money, I might not even be king, but I'd have fewer regrets. So what will it be for us? Our characters tell the story of what's going on in our souls. Our relationship with God reflects what's going on in our hearts. How we treat others reflects our hearts. What if today we made a resolution that from now on our souls are going to get top priority and thankfully God's already shown us how to do it. It might be upside down from the way the world works, but really it's just restoring us to how it was always meant to be. Love God, love others, and all will be well with our souls. Fear regrets and a soul that can say it is well. Don't take it from me. Take it from Solomon. Take it from Jesus. You care about your soul. The fear of the Lord is that we don't want to miss what God has for us. And Jesus has made it pretty simple. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself and it will be well with your soul. 
Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this simple but yet convicting invitation. God, I don't know about everybody here today, but I gotta confess that I don't always take care of my soul like I should. I feel like the world is telling me I gotta do this and that and I've gotta prioritize all these other things, yet, yet the Bible makes it very clear that I'm at risk of wasting my life at the risk of chasing the wind if I don't let you guide and direct my heart. Solomon says, I, I went everywhere, I bought every t-shirt, I've ridden every ride, I've had every experience, and it left me empty, it left me wanting, it left me drained. The end of the matter is that you should fear the Lord and keep his commandments, and Jesus made it so simple. If you wanna keep the commandments, love God, love people, and you won't sin, you won't use, take advantage of, you won't dishonor or disgrace. You'll put God first and you'll have a character that reflects a heart that has been saved and purified by the Spirit of God. Lord, in this invitation, we're gonna just give you the praise you're worthy of. We're gonna declare who you are, what kind of God you are, and say thank you for letting us be a part of your story, for giving us this invitation. If there's anybody in the house today that would confess that they have not put you first, they've not taken care of their souls and it's reflected in their character, it's reflected in how they serve you or how they don't serve you and it's reflected in their priorities, it's reflected in how they treat others. Lord, would you use this invitation to get us all back to the basics, to get us back to that place where we realize what it's all about and how it's so simple. Fear the Lord, keep his commandments, love God, love people and it will be well with our souls. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.